Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I apologize if this one sounds a bit rushed. It's currently about 80 degrees in my house because I have to turn off all fans and air conditioners when I record since my microphone is broken and therefore ultra sensitive. But I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible while maintaining the quality. And today's actually a very special episode. We have our very first double feature. Today we're going to be talking about both the Strangia Commune and the Khrushchevo Republic. The historical circumstances that led to both the creation and fall of each of these countries is the same story. So I figured instead of releasing two identical episodes, I may as well put them together in one episode. I'm going to start by setting the scene. You genuinely might want to pull out a map for this one if you're not intimately familiar with the Balkans and southeastern Europe, but I'm going to do my best to describe it in words as possible. We start in the earliest years of the 20th century, and the map of southeastern Europe looked as follows. Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece were very recently independent from the crumbling Ottoman Empire. Their boundaries looked pretty similar to what they do today, but the bottom thirds of both Bulgaria and Serbia were still part of the Ottoman Empire, and the same goes for the northern half of Greece, with only the actual Greek peninsula and surrounding islands under Greek control. Meanwhile, what we now call Albania, Kosovo, and North Macedonia were still firmly under Ottoman control, as well as the region of Thrace, which Turkey still holds to this day. That's that little section of Turkey that attaches to Greece over in the east. But of course, we are talking about the Balkans, and that means that no one was happy with this situation. All three of the freshly independent countries had their own claims to the Ottoman regions of the Balkan Peninsula. The entire region was very ethnically diverse and had a complicated geopolitical history, so at any given moment, Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, or the Ottomans could claim pretty much any section of the region based on either ethnic or historical boundaries and be at least partly justified in doing so. I'm not going to go into the full geopolitical history of the Balkan Peninsula, obviously. That would take genuine days of content to cover. But I will give you a, a little hypothetical situation that should give you a rough idea as to what I'm talking about. Imagine a situation like this unfolding in the United States. Mexico comes out and declares that they should own the southwestern United States because they used to, and a large portion of the population there still speaks Spanish. France, in turn, lays claim to the entire midsection of the country because it was theirs before the Louisiana Purchase, and people still speak French in New Orleans. And so the UK comes out and says that they deserve New England, since it's literally still called New England. And meanwhile, the United States government is sitting there saying, hello, we still own all of this stuff, you can't just have it. Except in this instance, the Ottomans are the United States, and Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia 
are the other countries. Hopefully that didn't make you more confused than you already were, but that is the situation that the Ottomans were looking at in the earliest years of the last century. The main focus of our story today, however, is Bulgaria, where the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or the IMRO, was operating. This was a secret society formed within the borders of the Ottoman Empire that sought to gain independence for the Macedonian region, which had long chafed under Ottoman rule. If you don't remember, the IMRO played a key role in the creation of the independent state of Macedonia, which we've covered on a previous episode. But it's important to know that at this point in history, we're at about 1903 here, the IMRO was not yet talking about full independence for Macedonia. At this point, they were pushing for Macedonian autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. The IMRO wanted autonomy and not independence for two reasons. For one, historically, autonomous states within the Ottoman Empire always reached full independence eventually. This was how Bulgaria, Serbia, and Romania had done it. They eventually became independent by gradually ignoring Ottoman power, and if the Macedonians could pull this off, they would be able to join Bulgaria proper. The second reason that they pushed for autonomy over independence is the fact that the existence of a single cohesive Macedonian polity within the Ottoman Empire would prevent Serbia or Greece from dividing up the region, which Bulgaria really wanted to prevent, since they wanted all of Macedonia for themselves. But there was a slight problem with this plan. This idea put the IMRO in conflict with another organization called the Macedonian Supreme Committee. This was a pro-Bulgarian group, whose agenda it was to see all of Macedonia annexed by Bulgaria, and that was a bit too harsh and a bit too quick for the IMRO's liking. Therefore, the IMRO began to plan a very strategic uprising that would force the Ottomans to recognize Macedonian autonomy, but the Macedonian Supreme Committee got in the way of these plans by launching a small-scale terrorist campaign in order to foment a full-fledged rebellion in Ottoman-held Macedonia. This caused a lot of feuding between the IMRO and the supremacists, but eventually the IMRO position began to slip. In April of 1903, a small rogue group of Bulgarian anarchists launched a terrorist attack against the Ottoman city of Thessaloniki. In response, Ottoman forces began massacring Bulgarian civilians within the city and the surrounding countryside. This obviously caused a lot of anger within the Bulgarian population, and the supremacists' idea of immediate and violent revolution was a lot more attractive to more and more people, and things got even worse for the IMRO in May of 1903, when their most outspoken leader of the take-it-slow policy was killed by the Ottomans. There was now very little standing in the way of these supremacists' plans for rebellion that same summer. 
On July 28th, therefore, the supremacists announced that rebellion would begin on August 2nd. The Bulgarian government sent out a message saying that they wanted nothing to do with it. Even though many people within the Bulgarian government supported the idea, the government itself supporting it would have caused a major international incident, and that wasn't something that they could afford. So, August 2nd arrived, and with it, the rebellion. On that day, small towns across what is now North Macedonia were attacked and captured by rebels over the next couple of days. But it is worth noting that these were very small towns, of which Khrushchevo was the largest, with just 4,000 people today, never mind over a hundred years ago. The population of the entire world was about 1.6 billion at that time, which is just 20% of what it is today. So if I use those numbers to get a very rough estimate, the largest town they would have captured, again, Khrushchevo, in the earliest days of the rebellion had a population of about 831 people. It's also worth noting that every town that was attacked in Macedonia was just about as far away from Bulgaria as possible. The IMRO did not want it to look like Bulgaria had anything to do with the rebellion, as any reprisals against their Bulgarian homeland would be disastrous for them, and it would kill the rebellion on the spot. The day after the rebellion began, on August 3rd, 1903, Local members of the IMRO established the Khrushchevo Republic in Khrushchevo. This new little country was welcomed into the world by an immediate attack from Ottoman forces. And when I say immediate, I really do mean it. They attacked the same afternoon that the Republic had been declared. And by August 12th, 3,500 Ottoman troops attacked the Khrushchevo Republic which was only defended by about 600 IMRO rebels, as well as light civilian defenders, which included girls as young as 16. And so the Ottoman forces, of course, crushed the resistance and ended the Khrushchevo Republic after just 10 days. But just because Khrushchevo had fallen did not mean that the rebellion was over. Just two days after the fall of that republic, a rebel band outside of Skopje, which is the modern capital and largest city of North Macedonia, derailed a military train. And this was enough of a PR victory that the people of Razlog, a town of roughly 2,700 people, joined in the rebellion. The warfare continued to pick up steam later that week when the IMRO launched a second offensive against the Ottomans in Thrace. The idea was that a two-front war would split the Ottoman focus and allow for more success in the Macedonian region. During this second war, an anarchist faction of the IMRO in Thrace took advantage of the chaos over in Macedonia and declared their own little state called the Strangia Commune. This operated on anarcho-communist principles, so it went about as well as you could expect. Women were the sole source of farm labor, since pretty much all of the men were constantly trying to defend their borders from Ottoman pushback. And on September 8th, 1903, 
just three weeks after its foundation, the Strangia Commune was completely overrun by Ottoman forces. All in all, the entire rebellion was eventually absolutely crushed by the Ottomans. The IMRO claims to have attacked with over 26,000 men, and even if this number is accurate, which it likely isn't, it was probably less than that, it doesn't matter because the Ottomans deployed more than 350,000 men in order to crush the Macedonian movement. These Turkish troops came down hard on the population of any town that had welcomed the rebels or took part in the rebellion at all, and that definitely included Razlog. Ottoman vengeance eventually spread to pretty much any Bulgarian or Macedonian that they came across, which prompted more than 30,000 people to flee into Bulgaria seeking refuge. As we know from my episode about the independent state of Macedonia, the Macedonians would eventually get their own country, but 1903 was just not their year. So why were the Khrushchevo Republic and the Strangia Commune forgotten? I have a couple reasons listed out here today, and I think the first and most obvious one is the simple fact that these two countries combined lasted a grand total of 31 days, just one clean month. Secondly, these two states were founded in the midst of a rebellion that itself was not only short-lived, but also failed. Failed rebellions are generally looked over in history, as opposed to a revolution, which I guess is just a successful rebellion. So I think it's pretty easy to forget about failures within a failure. I also feel like neither the Turks nor the Bulgarians are really that excited about this particular moment in history, and therefore they probably don't talk about it very much. After all, the Bulgarians failed in their movement really bad, and the Turkish reprisals against the rebels were perhaps a bit much, which they may be a little bit ashamed of. There is also the simple fact that history has seen situations like this again and again, specifically in the Balkans. These events would play out over and over again in the First Balkan War, and then again in the Second Balkan War, and then after that in World War I, and then again in World War II, as we covered on my episode about the independent state of Macedonia. And I think when repetition happens like that, people tend to focus on the last one, the one that was successful, because I guess that's really all that matters. So there you go, a two-for-one special, and both of them have been forgotten. I am going to purchase a new microphone literally right now, so that I don't have to record in 80-plus degree heat next week. And thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you all again when I have a better microphone next week.